Thank you, John. I was uh, all set except for my microphone, and I did not realize it until John got up there. This morning, uh, before we begin our sermon, I want to I share just a couple of announcements with you, reminders about things that are coming up. The first reminder is next week we will not have class. Instead, we're going to have Koine. And so following our, uh, our worship time, I'm going to encourage you to go back, grab your cup of coffee, get a snack, and then head up to the fellowship hall for our Koine time, uh, where we're going to spend some time in reflection as a family uh, on the resurrection. We're going to spend some time talking in some table groups. Uh, we're going to have a little bit more worship time, which I, I always enjoy. I think it's wonderful to get a few more opportunities together to worship our God. Um, so I in, invite you to that. The other thing I want to remind you of is that we have uh, some of these surveys that have been passed out. Two weeks ago, um, we received an overwhelming response to these sheets that we sent out that are roles that people may fill on a Sunday morning. Everything from our Friendship 20 service and preparation uh, to teaching our children's classes, being on the Harmony team, um, lots of different ways in which people can serve on Sunday morning. And most of you did a fantastic job of filling it out that morning and giving it back to us that morning. We know some of you weren't here, and uh, so you're absolved for not having filled it out that morning. Um, That said, We'd love for everyone to fill one of these out. Now, if you're wondering where you can get them and then who you can turn them into, uh, they are on the back table here in the auditorium, not in the fellowship or in the the lobby, uh, but here in the auditorium. There's a back table back there right next to the couch. You can find one of these right there. All you have to do is write your name at the top, bubble in the ways in which you're willing to serve, and over the next couple of weeks, you will be contacted by the people who schedule those roles to talk about whether or not you, you uh, have an idea of what that's going to look like, and then they'll start getting you in the rotation. And it may be a month or so before you're fully in the rotation, because we already had everything planned for this month, but we don't have anything on the books yet for May. And so uh, you may be serving as early as the first week of May at this point, if, uh, if you would like to. All right. If you want to turn them in, the question is, where do I turn them in? You can slip them right under my office door if you can't find me, but if you can find me, put them in my hands, and I will make sure that the appropriate people know the bubbles that you filled in or checked. Um, So that's my quick plug for this. If you haven't filled one of these forms out, I want to encourage you to fill it out. And there are roles on here that children can fill too. So if you're a kid and you're thinking, there's no way that I get to serve on Sunday morning, you're wrong. First of all, we have lots of ways you can serve. Uh, Fill it out put your names down. Uh, I had to remind my children that they were expected to fill it out too, and they did. And so um, if there are ways that you want to serve and you're wondering, can I serve in this way? Even if you don't know whether or not you can serve in this way, check the box because you're willing to do it and someone will contact you and talk to you about that. And so uh, all of that to say, everyone should fill one of these out. And if you haven't filled it out yet, uh, we're happy to receive it late uh, this week, next week, whenever you're able to fill it out. Let's get to our sermon this morning. Uh, we're continuing through the Gospel of John, and, and I realize next week is Easter, and we are nowhere near the resurrection in the Gospel. Now, we're going to spend some time talking about the resurrection next week. I want you to be uh, fully aware we're going we're to make a big time jump in our handling of the Gospel of John. We're staying in this Gospel, but the great thing about John's Gospel is there are a lot of post-resurrection details 
that occur in John's gospel. And so taking one of those to spend for Easter um, actually in some ways is going to give us a heightened anticipation, I think, for the things that are to come in this gospel. And so don't, do, not, do not be worried that we're not going to focus on Easter on Easter Sunday. Um, this morning, though, I think our sermon ties in well to this idea of expectation, excitement, enthusiasm for the work of what Jesus is doing. As Sean mentioned, this is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday that Jesus had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's, it's the moment at which people were verbally calling him the king, whether or not they realized what was going to end up happening over the course of the next week. But people had been anticipating what Jesus was going to do for a long time. And in fact, we're told uh, in, in the reading this morning, in the text of John chapter 6, that they wanted to make him a king from the moment that he started feeding them. And Jesus has to like rush away from the crowd because he doesn't want to be compelled to be a king through their image of what a king looks like. And so as we read this morning, as we go through uh, John chapter 6, one of the things that I want to draw to your attention is, is how this whole story begins. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. If you read John, you notice that there are, he's always trying to set it within the context of particular feasts. And there are three Passovers discussed in John's Gospel. And this is the, the second of the Passovers. We've already covered the first, in fact. We're in the second Passover that's covered in John's Gospel. And here, as, as Jesus is working with the crowds, as the enthusiasm and excitement for who he is and what he's doing has swelled and grown, he's got a multitude around him. It says, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. I always find it funny that, you know, John wants to tell us, like, Jesus knew what he was doing. This is not Jesus being, you know, completely aloof or anything. Jesus knew what he was saying. It's, it's Philip that maybe doesn't know what's going on, and Jesus is just trying to figure out whether or not he knows. And it continues. It says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. This is actually probably a pretty exciting problem for them to have. Like, it's distressing that they can't feed this entire crowd, but it's also a little exciting. It's like, wow. I can't believe the number of people that are, are coming to see Jesus. What are we involved in? What is this that's going on? I'm so excited. But man, this is a real problem, Jesus. We don't have enough money to feed the crowd. Even if we could buy bread, we couldn't buy the bread. <laughs> we don't have the money to do it. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? This, this conversation here, it's very funny. to I, I think John is trying to be a little bit humorous, right? Like he's, he's playing up the ways in which the disciples are responding to this situation. It's like, well, okay, Andrew, we're looking for helpful suggestions only here. You recognize this isn't enough food for everybody, so let's go ahead and move on. He even mentions, why, what are they for so many? It's sort of dismissive on his part. There's no way, you know, like even the food we can gather isn't going to feed this whole crowd. And of course, what we know happens here, 
the thing that we're all familiar with is that Jesus does, in fact, feed the entire crowd with two fish and five barley loaves. There is no one who walks away hungry from this situation. It's, it's really kind of an incredible story if we read it in the whole. And, and sometimes I think that we don't read the entire story. We don't really get to the conclusion of what's happening here. We uh, oftentimes reading scripture like to break it into little bits and pieces. I had talked about this last week. But the entire sixth chapter of the Gospel of John is not a series of events. It is one event. From the beginning to the end, we have a really coherent through line that happens here. Jesus feeds this multitude. He multiplies the bread in miraculous ways. Everyone walks away completely full. And what we end up seeing is that the crowd is enamored with this miracle. They are filled with awe and wonder at what he does. Of course, we could read the whole story here. Uh, Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish, and the disciples distribute them so that everybody has as much as they could want, and then they collect the pieces. Jesus is like, hey, bring it all back in. We want to make sure that we, we don't let anything spoil, and there's 15 basket loads at the end, right? It's this massive, wonderful moment. It's miraculous. It's beautiful. It's exciting. The crowd is like just overjoyed at what they've witnessed. I always wonder, what does it look like for Jesus to split the bread and for it to just be more than it was before. You know, I've split bread plenty of times in my life, crack, crack a loaf in half and pass it off, and I've got that mental image in my head. I don't, I don't know what it looks like to take a loaf of bread and split it, and there's more than there was before. Imagine being in that crowd, seeing that happen. For a man to take cooked fish and to break it, and there's more than there was before. For a man to then have his, his disciples pass this food out to a crowd, and you're starting to wonder, like, okay, what, what in the world is going on here? We can't even wrap our mind around how he's doing this. And it, it, it very quickly becomes clear, this can't possibly be some staged magic trick. We saw the loaves and the fish, and we saw it multiply in his hands. You get to the end of that, and you have no doubt why it is they want to make him the king, right? If you've been hungry in your life, if you've experienced that aching in your stomach, if you've struggled to put food on the table, who wouldn't want a king of abundance like this? It can take whatever you present to him and make it so much more. And so it's no wonder when they, they come to take him and make him the king, right? It's not a surprise to us. Of course, we as Christians, people who have read the scriptures, those of us who know the further story, we're like, it's the most natural thing in the world to want to make Jesus the king. We can empathize with this story. But Jesus isn't there to be made king on the second Passover in the story of the Gospel of John. He's not there to be lifted on men's shoulders and carried to a throne to have the crowd take up swords and drive out the Romans. Jesus is there to feed the people. It's the most peaceful act that a king could offer no one walks away hungry from this table. 
And Jesus rushes away from the crowd, aware of their intentions for him, that this is going to become a revolution very quickly, and he is not here for revolution on their terms. And so Jesus, in this this small section of Scripture that we have in the middle, performs another miracle, does something miraculous just for a small group of people, men who weren't even really expecting it. And it seems a little out of place in the grand context of chapter 6. But they cross over to the other side of the, the, the ocean, and the crowd comes looking for Jesus anyway. And the funny thing about this is that they get there and they're like, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Not because you have an understanding about the big picture of what's going on, but because you're hungry and you want more. You saw what I did, but you didn't see the sign. This is what Jesus is saying to them. Like, you, you, you got your fill, but I don't think you understood what was really happening. And Jesus begins to tell people what really happened in that moment. He begins to expand on this whole concept of, of the bread. In verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now they're starting to think, Jesus, you're speaking in riddles. We want the food that endures. That's that's what we want. You know, we want our bellies never to be empty. Give us more food. Give us more fish. We saw what you did. We want more of it. Jesus says, no. You're looking for perishables. And what I want to give you is so much more. The Father has set his seal. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Verse 29 through 31 says, Jesus answered them, because they're confused, what what are we supposed to do if we want to get all this good stuff you're promising us. He says, this this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, here's the thing. Over and over again in the Gospel of John, we've seen these little allusions to Moses. We've seen these allusions back to what happens with the Israelite people in the wilderness. We've seen the, the statement about the serpent that will be lifted up. Uh, we see here that Jesus is going to start talking about Moses as well, because they've called on this subject. Hey, you know what? We know why we believe in Moses. We know why we follow the law. We know why it is that we call ourselves Israelite people. It's because when we were hungry, God gave us food. Although, When they say God gave us food, they're really talking about Moses. This is the problem. Over and over again, when Jesus encounters people who hold in high regard the story of the Exodus, they don't necessarily associate it with the God who performed the miracles of the Exodus. They're all calling back to Moses. 
Moses is a good guy. I want to be completely clear here. We can, we can look at the life of Moses and draw a lot of wisdom and discernment and, and ways in which maybe we should behave and act. Uh, Bob Lubin has done a really good job in the past of talking about how Moses is a good example of someone who is a leader under God. But it's possible for us to hold the leader under God in too high a regard. To think that whatever that leader did must be the final form of how things are going to be. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. We know why we follow Moses. We know why we do what he said. What sign are you going to give to us? And Jesus says this, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. When he uses this phrase, he says, I am the bread of life. Where did your bread come from? Think because Moses said that you're going to receive some bread from heaven, that he's the one that pulled it down from the sky? Do you recognize who sent that bread to you in the first place? The hope of the Israelite people was not in the man Moses. The hope of the people was in I am, Yahweh, their God. And Moses' hope was in I am, Yahweh, their God. Moses doesn't go into Egypt and speak to Pharaoh because he believes that he's got some special magic trick up his sleeve. Moses doesn't go into Egypt and and strike the river because he thinks that he's going to magically change the water to blood. Moses doesn't call on Pharaoh and say, behold the signs and wonders which God will show to you because he thinks that he's going to perform these signs and wonders. It's because Moses has absolute confidence in whatever is going to happen coming from the God that he serves. Moses doesn't claim credit for the quail or the manna or the water in the wilderness. Now, Moses gets a lot of the grumbling and blaming right alongside God, but Moses doesn't stand up and say, hey, you know, look what I did for you. Look how wonderful I am. In fact, for Moses to utter those words, I am, would be a very dangerous thing in many ways. Moses doesn't claim credit, but here, Jesus speaks the name of God, and he says, I am the bread of life. I think Kyle had alluded to this during the the sermon on the woman at the well. There are seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus uses this phrase, I am, and sometimes we add in like an additional word. Uh, Jesus will say, I am, and then we say, he, but there's no he in the scriptures there. This is Jesus making a statement about the identity and nature of God, whom he is also claiming the identity and nature of. And here Jesus says, I am the bread of life. God, the bread of life. The Lord, the bread of life. 
You want to feast on a whole lot of things. You want fish in your stomachs. You want bread on your table. You want to see the miraculous signs and wonders. It's not just about bread. It's not just about fish. If you want to be filled, you need God. I am the bread of life. Now, Jesus goes on and he expands on this. He he talks longer about what it is that he is trying to explain to them. And, And we could read that whole text, but I'd be here for another 20 minutes, and I don't have 20 minutes more. They grumble and complain as they begin to hear him explain what it is that he means by this, because he doesn't want them to walk away thinking that his message is mixed or muddled or confused. In fact, he really drives home, what I am telling you is that I am the work of God in this world. Everything you see that you can attribute to God, all the good, all the wonders, all the miracles, it's not just about your physical bodies and it's not about a physical throne. It is not about me going into Jerusalem and getting rid of the Romans. It's not about me reclaiming the temple for a worship ritual that is is thousands of years old. It's about me telling you what you need most, more than any of those things. is the filling of your, your person with the bread of life. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. This is actually not the only time in this chapter that they grumble about him. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because now he gets really specific. He's like, look, my body is your bread. My blood is your wine. We, uh, we actually, in the Gospel of John, we don't have a Lord's Supper moment where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and goes through what we would call the typical routine. But we do have Jesus giving out the best wine. We do have Jesus multiplying the bread to an entire crowd of people, and we do have him explaining to the entire crowd who completely fail and miss the point what communion is all about. He does it an entire year in advance. John wants to make it clear this is not a last-minute thing that Jesus suddenly sparks in his mind as he's eating his final Passover. Jesus has been thinking about the cross from the very beginning. That the bread of life, that the blood, that these things are essential to what Jesus is going to do. But they walk away. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. As Jesus continues this language of his body being bread, of his blood being wine, they're distressed. As he begins to talk about how he is going to give himself for them, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. John tells the same story as Matthew, as Mark, as Luke. But one of the things John really wants to drive home for us is that the events of the last week of the life of Christ 
were scripted from the very beginning. Jesus knew the steps he was going to take. Jesus knew what he was going to give of himself. And Jesus spends his entire ministry preparing his disciples to hear and see and understand what will happen on Easter Sunday, what will happen on Good Friday, what will happen when he enters into the town and receives his triumphal entry. The story begins with Jesus feeding the crowd who receive him so warmly, and then he runs away because they want me to be king, but they don't really know what that means. The crowd finds him again and demands more. He says, you don't really know what you want, but I know what you need. When they hear that, they walk away because they're disappointed. But there's there's a small group of people that remain. And I've always found this last bit here, this, this statement that we're about to read, very encouraging. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. A lot of times the world is looking for something to fill their stomachs. And there's nothing wrong with that. People need food. It's important for our living. God created us to desire to eat. And the fact that Jesus fills that desire is a beautiful and wonderful thing. But Peter's words here, Peter's words here are a realization of the deeper, more real truth. You have the words of eternal life. And notice he says this after, to whom shall we go? There is no one else that can give us what you have. Even if Moses had given bread, even if David wrote these beautiful psalms, even if we look at our father Abraham who gave us our identity as a nation, you are the one that has the words of eternal life. And in this moment, even as the crowds are maybe a little disillusioned with Jesus and his very enigmatic and strange words, his peculiar discussion of eating his flesh and drinking his blood as they're trying to process this without the context of the cross, there are 12 men who have followed Jesus for a period of time here who say, look, we don't, we don't really fully understand, but we know what you have is what we need. Sometimes we think that we need to have a full understanding in order to get the most out of Jesus. 
as though our accumulation of knowledge will uh, allow us some special access to the Father, to the Spirit, to Jesus himself, that will just enrich and grow us in marvelous and magical ways, and, and we'll become super Christians, right? And we'll have a glow about us, and everyone around us, based on our knowledge, will be so impressed that we just can't help but be evangelists even when we blow our nose. I don't know why I said that. That's weird. What was it that Jesus told the crowd? See, they, they ask, what works can we do to receive the bread that you're promising to us? This eternal life that you're suggesting. What works can we do? And Jesus says, this is the work. And this is where we should all get our pencils out and take notes, right? This is the work you need to do. Believe. And everyone's waiting for him to say something else. Believe. Believe in the one whom the Father has sent. Okay, it's got to be more complicated than that, Jesus, right? If I want eternal life, if I want, if I want the bread from heaven, if I want to be filled, if I want to find satisfaction in my life, I need to have a bunch of rules to follow, a list of things that I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to figure this all out and piece together the equation. He says, believe. And then he gives them a whole bunch of things to believe about him. And it's so simple. And it's nested right here in this this wonderful, miraculous message that we receive in John chapter 6. It's simple. And it's so simple that I think sometimes we miss it. I think the crowd missed it. All Jesus tells them is believe. That is the work that we are called to do. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to be transformed in amazing, wonderful ways through our belief, ways that we can't attribute to ourselves. It doesn't mean that God's not preparing wonderful works for us to do, but our receipt of eternal life, our filling with the bread of life, our participation in the life of Christ is not dependent on a laundry list of tasks all comes down to belief. And if you want to find fulfillment, it's not going to come from Moses. The manna in the wilderness has long since expired. In fact, if you wake up on Sunday morning and you got some in your tent, it's going to go bad. But the real bread that came down from heaven will not expire You don't need to gather it. It has come to you. And it is there to gather you to itself. And all he asks is that you believe. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come because we want to see signs and wonders. We want to have our bellies filled. We want to witness things that are 